Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are going to get in the cage with Nicolas Cage and the best and worst movie of the mid-2000s, National Treasure. My name is Matt, I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Matt, I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to discuss how John Turtletaub and Jerry Bruckheimer's National Treasure might help us, I can't believe I'm saying this, think about the life in the church and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how National Treasure might help us, and I can't believe I'm saying this, the lectionary passages for May 31st, which happens to be Pentecost Sunday. In our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading, watching, or following in this time of quarantine and a global pandemic. Um, before we begin, I want to introduce our guest, the only other person I would invite on to our show to talk about the best and worst movie of the mid-2000s, Steve Bragaw, our podcast correspondent for all things American politics and American government. Steve is formerly of uh, Washington Lee University and now is, of all things, headed to seminary in the fall to become an Episcopal priest. Congratulations to Steve. Uh, he has been with us before whenever we need to talk about political history, so we had to have him to ask him all about the treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Steve, congratulations on your life journey, and welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. So, I love this movie, and I will hear no ill words spoken about it. Also, this movie is terrible and full of terrible people. Nicholas <laughs> Cage plays Benjamin Franklin Gates, descendant of a family that carries a lost secret about the Knights Templar, who apparently brought treasure to the American colonies, hid it somewhere, and then embedded clues to its location in a bunch of our founding iconography. This movie came out a year after Dan Brown released The Da Vinci Code, and honestly, they feel of the same breath. Adventure stories born out of conspiracy theories claiming some suppressed truth from the origin myths of the country, or, in the case of Da Vinci Code, from Christianity itself. We're going to have to talk about that, for good and for ill. But before we make it sound too complicated, this is a movie about a treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. The bad guys are going to steal it, so the good guys have to steal it first. There's your movie. I love it so much. It's so terrible. Steve, help me out. What was it like going back to the deep well of National Treasure? Hi, guys. This is, I want to thank you so much. This was the thing I, I didn't realize that I needed during this week, of, week nine of Corona time was to sit down, uh, uh, have, a, have a nice cold adult beverage, and watch National Treasure um, again. Uh, you know, this is it's funny because I've been, uh, you know, thinking at the level of, of, of being a professor and a scholar of the Constitution. Uh, there is no map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Maybe. Are you sure? Are you sure? Federation. I could see that. <laughs> but, uh, and then I, I think that, you know, that, that, the Knights Templar treasure house underneath Trinity Wall Street. That would explain a lot, but you know, but but this is this movie is great. So I mean, I'll, I'll personal confession, and Matt knew this. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's so bad, it's good. It's in that special level of of movies for me. It's only right up there with Escape from New York um, and Patrick Swayze, Swayze epic Roadhouse. Um, but there's lots of different ways, you know, as I was thinking about this movie, just as it, as this element of American pop culture from the first decade of the 21st century. Right. Right at the time, the high point of it's the high point of Harry Potter. It's right before the MCU gets created. So you have this one level. You have the second level about conspiracy theories in American politics, 
which is is as we know, especially now in current time, is so real and vivid. But this is a very deep thing. This goes all the way back to the founding, not the revolution, but all the way back to the Puritans. Um, and it's tied deeply into this sort of in this it's the dark side of the covenantal uh, idea uh, in Massachusetts, uh, in Massachusetts Bay. Uh, and then there's this dimension of it too, which is of this, what is it with our fascination for lost and hidden wisdom narratives, right? What is this about, you know, Gnostic, uh, you know, our fascination with the Gnostic gospels, with Dagamati, the Dead Sea Scrolls, this type of stuff. So there's all these different sort of this search for compelling truths um, and hidden wisdoms that's just deeply buried within this great, you know, is it a treasure hunt? Is it a heist? I mean, there's just all sorts of, 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 of fun things um, with the movie. Steve, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm really fascinated with the kind of deep, with, with your sense of the deep history of conspiracy theory in American political thought, American historical thought. I mean, we know, I, I know like the, the, the the ten cent version of the kind of Richard Hofstadter vision of this, but I'm 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 curious if you would flesh out that line a little bit more for me from kind of national roots through to national treasure, which now seems so relevant in the era of Pizzagate and QAnon and the all of the um, anti vaccine stuff that is now so trenchant in the era of coronavirus. So I feel like there's when we decided to watch this movie, it felt like a dumb diversion. And then I'm sitting there watching it thinking, oh my gosh, this is so incredibly <laughs> relevant in this really kind of frustratingly grief-stricken way for me. Like, crap, what water are we in? So can, I'm wondering if you could help me understand that a little bit. Yeah, so, so there's, there's a couple levels. One, I really think that like 30, 40 years from now, when, when people are doing courses and writing about the era that we're in right now, one of the ways that people are going to introduce our time is having them watch a combination of things. One is going to be House of Cards, right? Uh, that that you So you get the whole House of Cards, that all the different type of thing. The Our fascination with, um, if you think of, um, of the TV show Scandal, the TV show Designated Survivor, all these different things which come out just before 2016 that are about um, stolen presidential elections, uh, all these other different types of things. Um, but at a deeper level, this this movie, right, which it's Disney, it's on Disney Plus, right? It, 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 it's, it seems like this, it's a simple thing, but it's not, right? Um, so, that, so I think it's going to be this entry into this. The, the the whole the whole idea about conspiracy theories, in American politics, American political culture. This goes all the way back to the beginning. It, it, so Richard Hofstadter, you alluded to the paranoid persuasion of American politics. So Richard Hofstadter writes this essay um, that's a lecture, and that he then publishes, and it comes out in October 1963, right before the Kennedy assassination. So it's like capturing an amber. It's like a you know, it's the dinosaur DNA trapped in amber. It captures the sort of the whole sort of American, this overview of American thinking about conspiracy theories right before the asteroid strike of the, the Kennedy assassination. Um, and so, so Hosser's idea, which is controversial for some people, but I think he's, there's something really compelling there, is that when the Puritans come in with their covenant mindset, right, and they're creating their their... Uh, the, the the charters for the towns and the kind of reading Exodus and seeing themselves in it, it it, it creates this sort of uh, there's the light side to it, the good side to it, which is this idea of this constitution making, um, but the dark side of it is this belief that uh, they're being pursued, right? That that if there's something goes wrong, uh, that there is some deeper deeper darker force at play. Uh, much in the way that the that they, they're reading themselves as the Israelites into that story, right? There's another team on the board, right? And so there's this darkness there. It's, it's there in the pure, It's there in the um, in the the uh, uh, the witch trials. It goes through into the 19th century. It shows up in times. See if this sounds familiar. Um, the conspiracy theories are very prominent when there's a lot of economic disruption. 
when there's a, and then also periods of intense immigration. And when you look at those times together, like the 19th end of the 19th century, uh, there's this fear that the uh, America is going to be taken over. America is going to be uh, 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 taken down somehow. And there's different elements of it that, uh, on the more concert, the the more what we think of as the right. There's different conspiracy theories on the left, but there, uh, which we can talk about. But there's this sort of central thread that goes back to uh, the roots of that covenantal American exceptionalism um, that's there at the founding. So it's this really kind of weird darkness. Um, you know, Bruce Springsteen, the darkness on the edge of town, right, for the American exceptionalism is our belief in covenant, uh, our belief in conspiracy theories. So, I mean, which makes this movie really interesting in part because the, the treasure itself and its hiddenness has like, it's explained with some sort of deep nobility, right? Like that there are these noble men largely who have saved and preserved this treasure for posterity's sake. Um, I think he says at some point, like I, when he's in Diane Kruger's office, he says, I, um, uh, I, we are searching for something of intrinsic good. Right, which is a really funny way of putting treasure because treasure is not an extrinsic good. It's a it's capital, right? It's designed in order to enrich you. And all treasure movies are designed to enrich the treasure hunter, except, you know, Indiana Jones in some ways sort of turns this on this head. And, you know, he constantly says it belongs in a museum and Benjamin Gates does the same thing. You know, he so he's going to he's going to come in and he's going to get with this noble idea like preserve the nobility of these the Knights Templar and these men who during the Crusades apparently found Solomon's Temple which would have been I don't know destroyed 800 years earlier um, and uh, and have found this magnificent uh, treasure and so I, on the one hand you have this sort of Benjamin Gates character that has the zealot the zealot the zealotry of a conspiracy theorist but also has the nobility of a founding father, right? Who has the, some some sort of like larger idea about how things should work. And so this movie is is really in some ways trying to sort of take that history, but also reform it in a way where you can see that the conspiracy theorist is, is maybe actually the noble one, which is a, a funny little 2000, like post 9-11 sleight of hand here, which is happening which is to say, like, oh, maybe the people that you don't expect to have the answers actually have the answers, and maybe they're better than you thought that they were. They're not just treasure hunters. They're not just mercenaries out for the money themselves. They're actually out there to to create some lasting good for the world. And, you know, I like how at the end of the movie, like, they're like, this this treasure is going to go back to, to the world. It will be part of the Smithsonian and the National Museum, oh yeah, and the the Museum of Cairo, like, right, like, you know, like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we should return these antiquities to the places that they actually came from, and maybe you know these sarcophaguses don't belong yeah, here. You think? <laughs> um, well, so it's it's a, that excellent setup that they open up one of the sarcophagi, and then it it leads into the backdoor reboot of the Mummy movies. <laughs> Matt, as you were. As you were watching this, what was standing out to you? I mean, I've seen this movie so many times, it's hard to have, like, new reactions to it. I, I, it has been a while since I've watched it, and so I, I was kind of lost in the... I, I was lost in the Pizzagate and QAnon of all of this. I was lost in the, like... It it, it felt darker to me now yeah. um, in 2020 than it did when I first loved this movie in 2004. Because we have now seen in such plain sight how, how crazy, but also how, how like seductive these narratives of, of of what Dan Brown would call the symbology of it, right? Which is this bullshit crazy word, but th this like the the, the the impulse to believe that there is this kind of hidden meaning that strings through all of these disparate texts that reveals some vast underside. Um, I mean, go onto the QAnon forums and you will see all this same logic um, that, you know, the folks who are 
the, the politicians who are in press conferences who like have a button on their sleeve in the right place that is a symbol to the people watching on the forums that they're really in on whatever the thing. I mean, it's very, it is the same logic and it, and it, it, so now it feels so much more icky to me to go back to it. I mean, that's, that was the, that, that was sort of the response that I had. I mean, and then of course, we get to the end and we get to Trinity Wall Street and I have a, a, a different reaction as well now, um, now, that, <laughs> now that I am in ministry to, um, uh, you know, Gates's conservative estimate when he tells Harvey Keitel that he's willing to pay $10 billion to get out of jail, which I think is a pretty conservative estimate for what the value of the treasure that they just saw would have been at the same time. <laughs> At, at, at the same time, in preparation for this episode, I went back to look at some recent financial reports from Trinity Wall Street, and their property holdings are currently estimated somewhere north of $9 billion. And, Get out of here. Uh, yeah. So it's it's actually yeah. not... <laughs> or Manhattan. Right. Which, you know, and, and the movie also helps explain, you go back to the same type of the joke, it's sort of like, you know, with the, Trin- the rector of Trinity Wall Street always said, there's always money in the banana stand. Right. <laughs> So I mean I, I have I have a different sort of ecclesial view of that too, which is a I mean not that the movie does not posit that Trinity Wall Street is aware of this money and is hiding it. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, it, it, it would does, explain a lot. It it does sort of push these questions of what are churches supposed to do with the resources that they have, and to what degree is 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 our churches who are in the position of of I mean just to say it, of sort of hoarding massive amounts of capital, what is the, where is the value of that? And how do churches as a, as how do we, as a one body of Christ need to think about the proper allocation of those, those instruments of capital. Right. And, and I mean, even, I mean, you can, you can spend that out in a lot of different directions because that number, whatever that number is, 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 is can be relative depending on where you are and what you're comparing it to. Um, But there is like at the heart, this two competing visions of who the treasure is for. Right. And I think that those, you can map those on how to think about that capital. Right. Because there's the Sean Bean character who is maybe the most underdeveloped villain in the last 30 years. Right. Well, if you you just, if you just cast Sean Bean, you don't have to develop him because we just kind of like, take his character from all the previous action movies that he has played the same character in. So he just plays the yeah. same guy. You just, you just roll it forward. Uh, yeah, it, totally. I mean, he, I, he has, he's apparently a person of means. That's about all we right. get. He can, he, and... he, he can hire, he can set up a complicated underwater submarine rescue operation of some like scuba diving operation in the New York city in, in the Hudson in the space of like 12 hours. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, but we have at the heart two competing visions of what the treasure is for, right? Like on the one hand, there's the the treasure good for the posterity of all people who can all experience the goodness of this, much like the Declaration of Independence, right? It's we the people, it's for the people. But then there's this sort of more selfish vision, which is this this treasure is for me, and I'm going to profit from it. Um, never mind the fact that like there seems to be some property issues here, right? Like, so if you find a treasure at the bottom of Trinity Wall Street, does that automatically make it yours then? I, because it seems that it would just be Trinity Wall Streets at that point. And, like, how, and how would you even extract it? I mean, <laughs> I in a way that would make it yours. I mean, the, 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 the sheer logistics of that in Lower Manhattan are just boggling to me. So, but at the heart of it, it's like, and you see it in the way the movie's filmed, even when they're trying to take the, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Christy pointed it out to me that she was like, oh, listen to the music while the, the bad guys are trying to steal it. And then while Gates is trying to steal it, right? Like one's a treasure hunt and one's a heist. And um, because who, who, like who gets to profit is, a, is an important part of this movie. And I think it, it's part of its political vision too, right? Which is that it wants to tell this founding story of the United States um, and, and keep the, the symbols that are valuable to people in, when you look at the Declaration of Independence, which is a, a sort of um, fierce independence, a, a desire for freedom and liberty, a um, 
a courage. You know, at some point, Gates says, like, toast to treason and tells them, like, if if this didn't happen, all of those signers would have been quartered. Um, but at the heart of it is this movie wants to, on the one hand, um, tell some sort of fun story about treasure hunt, but also prop up what can be sometimes um, really troubling symbols too. And it, it does not want to have a conversation about the way that those those symbols can be used in troubling ways, even with respect to the ways that conspiracy can seek to undermine what is the sort of pure intent of the founders. Well, the other interesting thing to me about that is that, I mean, you know, we have Nicolas Cage's dad, we have John Voight's character, Benjamin Franklin something in that family tree, whose whose constant refrain is that they're never going to find the thing. It's going to be a clue that leads to a clue that leads to a clue that leads to a clue. And, and I, I think we have a little, there's a little bit of a tension here between like the real treasures, the friends we made along the way, right? <laughs> like to what extent is the treasure actually the goal and to what extent do they just want to have an adventure and be strung along from point to point to point to point? And I think we see a little bit of that and I keep coming back to this, but I think we see a little bit of that in the modern day, uh, QAnon, Pizzagate conspiracy stuff, where the, there actually is no acceptable end goal. It, the, the point is to to be in the hunt of it, and to and and if you find your way out, you've lost, you've missed something. Uh, at least that's kind of my 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 lay read on that. Yeah, I, I think that the pop culture, like the diff, the difference is that uh, with the QAnon, it's kind of like lost in the sense. They have no idea where this is going, right? Um, they're, you know, the people who are behind this. I, I, I love to think it's a mad prank that got a little bit out of hand, right? Um, but they have no idea where it's going. Um, there's not a, there's, you, you read this stuff, there's not a there there, other than if you're familiar with the stuff, you can see whoever's like the, the people who are, who are doing this thing. They know enough about what symbols they need to tap into to play with, but it, it, it's it's there's no there there. Whereas in this movie, what's kind of funny is that as like as a con law professor and, and someone who studied the Constitution and studied American political culture and the connections in with uh, popular culture over time, is that what's what works to me about this movie is the fact that it's not like oh the treasure. The friends we made along the way. The treasure is not like the uh, the journey. There actually is something there um, that. No, it's very Bruckheimer, right? Where he's just yeah. like the biggest treasure. What is the biggest treasure? Like every make every other treasure in every other movie seem small when compared yeah. to the treasure here, right? Yeah. Well, they, I mean, they spend a good two minutes looking at like the narthex of the sanctuary of the treasure. And then they like light, <laughs> and then they like light the oil, and it, and it, and you do the reveal, yeah. and it's like, oh crap! And yeah, so, it's like this, this. It's like the minds of more. Uh, it's like the uh, oh th wait, this movie would have come out right after. Uh, this would be the same time as the Lord of the Rings movies, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. So uh, so, but so to me, what offended me was that or offends the wrong word. What what where I felt let down was that yeah okay you have like it's gonna be the Bruckheimer it's like but you know they bring in Michael Bay for visioning and it's like you know all the treasure of everything in the world is here but it's what I was looking for was that sort of center box where it was like the original copy of the Federalist Papers or something which is like the yeah. treasure of this or the ideas right that the I love the fact that you know this idea that so there's this treasure map on the Declaration back of the Declaration of Independence. If it gets people to read the Declaration of Independence, that's great because the treasure there is a set of ideas, right? And it's almost, but that's its own trope. There's like a there's a variation on the treasure hunt usually where you get like the brothers or the siblings who are fighting, and that they come to get they get forced into this treasure hunt, and then it turns out to be the thing which they're looking for. 
is like they've got two pieces of picture that they got put together and it's a picture of them as kids or something like that. It's like White Collar did a version of this. Uh, the TV show Wings did a version of that. I think it's like the first episode of Wings. I don't know where the heck that came from from my head. But there's different variations on it. And so part of me felt a little bit sad that they didn't, that instead of, they went for the Jerry Bruckheimer, which is like, all the treasure from everywhere, all in this one spot. Um, instead of like, they, they get there and it's actually, and it's not like, you know, Benjamin Franklin's been drinking from the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, oh, that would actually been kind of cool. Like 300 year old Benjamin Franklin drinking, drinking from the Holy Grail. And you must pick the cup of George Washington. Right. And it's like, what's the cup of the slaveholder, you know, general, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> But that's that's what makes this movie so like interesting too, yeah. because I think those those ideas and as you as you said in the are are treasure right like they yeah. they are central and valuable in ways yeah. that we can't immediately quantify in the same way that we can quantify a sarcophagus I guess exactly and, and that that gives us the like for some of us that's satisfying but. Yeah. I think to the QAnon crowd, to the conspiracy theorist crowd, to many American Christians, that idea that the text itself and the ideas that it's trying to wrestle with is not satisfying. Yeah. It's just not enough. Yeah. It's not ultimate. And so what you need, and I think this is part of the interesting thing that this text, that this movie has to say about text itself, is that, that yes, there's this text, but it's not the actually the valuable thing. It there's something behind it. There's something hidden in it. And if you can discern and unlock the code, then you will find the truly precious thing out there. And that is such a more enticing and in some ways insidious idea that leads people to all sorts of things. And so you have to have like some sort of Bible code. I mean, and in many ways, when they're when they're looking at the Silas Goody papers or whatever it's called, like they're... Uh, they're doing Bible code, but just with like American historical artifacts. It's yeah, it's it's like yeah. biblical numerology. Yeah, it's it's absolutely what it is. Yeah, I, I yeah. keep thinking about the. Um, I mean, you'll probably know this. I pulled it up, but I, I, I keep thinking about the Billy Collins poem, Introduction to Poetry. Yeah. Um, um, which is short enough that I'm just going to read it because I think it's a really nice counterpoint to, uh, to what this film offers. Uh, Collins writes, I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem waving at the author's name on the shore but all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. That to, I mean, that to me sums up so much of the kind of the difference of interpretive approach that like I'm trying to model when I do exegesis in preparation for preaching on a Sunday versus the kind of like behind the veil what's the real secret gotcha stuff that i think is is playing out in this film a little bit and plays out in some exegesis and biblical interpretation that i just don't have a lot of time for i mean i don't know does that does that resonate for like how you do your sermon prep adam oh totally yeah i mean i i come back to this poem frequently just to think about that in part because I don't I don't honestly want to be a code breaker. I, I don't want to be a treasure hunter because then it has to it means that everybody else has to become a treasure hunter. And um, and that puts us in competition and that doesn't give us the ability to do the collaborative work that I think is really necessary in order to be the church in the 21st century. And so trying to sort of, you know, trying to release people from the fact that there is something hidden in these texts and therefore you need to go to school for a million years or you need to um or you need to possess like incredible control over the symbols of everything that's there um i think it doesn't actually serve us in the church and you know i i think in many ways betrays 
some of our founding fathers and mothers of the Reformation who said, no, that's not actually how this works. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of this movie when when watching it now and thinking about, you know, the conspiracy theories, particularly the way they're metastasizing around the pandemic. Um, you add in the apocalypse, sort of the apocalypticism, right? The apocalyptic mindset, uh, the belief in uh, a very, one of the things which has become really dark in American politics now is this sort of very Manichaean, it's as good for versus evil starkness, right? Uh, and that there's an element of this movie which has that sort of foreshadowing of, you know, what is, what is our task, right? What is, what is our task as citizens? What is our task as members of the church? And to me, part of it is this whole thing, the sense of, you know, are we required to, uh, to dig deeper or, or, or rather are we, are, are we supposed to have faith, right? And to trust each other. And uh, what's scary is that there's an element about this movie which is, is supposed to be fun and whimsical, but is actually a narrative about mistrust. And that's a scary thing. Actually, I think that that's a good place for us to go and start talking about the, the Pentecost story, where it's full of these amazing things that are happening, but a certain amount of mistrust as well. Before we move on to that, I'd like to tell you that we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they're doing. They are providing all sorts of resources for the church in this time of social isolation. I commend those articles to you. They also just have released their book recommendations for the spring. Um, if you, like me, are looking for something to read, uh, go check those out. They're always really smart and really thoughtful, especially with respect to some of the more interesting and valuable resources that are coming out in the, the field of theology or biblical studies or ethics or things like that. Also, if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, gentlemen, let's talk about preaching. The text for this upcoming lectionary is Pentecost, year A, May 31st. We have, of course, the Pentecost narrative in Acts 2, but we also have the narrative of Eldad and Medad in Numbers. You can also choose John's Pentecost and John 20, or Paul's description of the Spirit's gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Steve, this is your entrance exam for seminary. Uh, how would you approach these <laughs> these lectionary selections? And I and, know... And, and, and more to the point, as you look at them, does anything jump out to you as being inspired and interesting as connections with National Treasure? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, there's the, I mean, yeah, I love this. Uh, to me, it's, it's the text of, uh, it, it's the line. It's like, while they were drunk, you know, and it's just the crowds just like saying, just go home, you're drunk, because it's nine in the morning. And, and there's this sort of like that element of, uh, in, uh, you can kind of envision Peter's eyes and this sort of like the, no, we're not drunk. It's really, we've got this story. And uh, so there's an element of it to me, which is the difference between the, uh, the, the search for the inner puzzle, right? The box within the box within the box, whether it's national treasure or Dan Brown or searching for Pepe Silvia, why he's not getting his mail. Uh, now described everything that J.J. Abrams has also ever made. <laughs> it's that sort of really weird way that you can connect Pentecost with always sunny in Philadelphia, but which is always then about sort of that's always about wisdom and knowledge and and this thing versus just the simple statement of faith that Paul is making here, uh, or excuse me, that Peter's making here, and that uh, and and looking at this sort of this. Uh, you know, this idea of of this is about faith and not reason. And it's not to say reason's not a good thing and, and reason's important, um, because it is, but it's the search for truth of uh clues and being, you know, looking for, you know, hidden maps and everything like this, versus the truth which is there right in front of you um all along. Um, you know, it's the it is do we find wisdom by, uh, you know, putting on those goofy sunglasses and looking for the treasure map on the back 
of the sacred text, or do we find wisdom by listening at the window while we're trying to sleep at night and there's the Holy Spirit in a, in a trench coat holding a boom box over, a box over its head and saying, you belong to me, right? Um, and so it's a sort of a question of, of which wisdom do we reach out to? And there's a temptation, there's a vanity, there's the intellectual vanity that's embedded in the, um, the treasure hunt, right? The uh, Indiana Jones and everything like that. I think the verse, national treasure for me is, is, I love it, but Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail is better because Indiana <laughs> Jones doesn't, he doesn't take it, right? He recognizes that there's some things which you should not have. And, um, and so there's this element to me of, of, of the leap of faith uh, that, uh, that Peter's making and preaching, which is about not, is it trusting your heart rather than what, and it's not to say you're going to trust your mind as well, but that's where the leap comes from, um, because it's very easy for vanity and, and, um, and, and fear and paranoia to lead you down the dark way. How's that? First draft. Oh, good. <laughs> I'll take that. Adam, how about you? What, what, uh, what jumped out to you as you were looking at the lectionary text? You know, so it's hard to not talk about Pentecost on Pentecost, right? So you, just from a preaching standpoint, you trying to stick with this text, but I don't know about you, Matt, it comes around every year. So you have to always kind of consider Pentecost in relationship to something else as a way to try and jog your memory. And I think national treasure is one way to do this. But I would also encourage you to also, and people to consider that, that there are actually three sort of Pentecost texts that show up in, in scripture. Um, one is actually in the lectionary. It's the John 20 passage where um, it's one of the resurrection accounts of Jesus, where Jesus comes into the room with the apostles. And it, the text says that it, he breathes his spirit on them, um, which is it's a far more intimate picture about how Christ is um, is bestowing or providing the Holy Spirit. It is um, it. It, it comes in the same way, whereas there's a rushing wind on Pentecost, um, there is a breath that's coming from Christ, but it comes with a commissioning. It comes with, a, and it has its own, um, I think, uh, set of symbols that, that are worth considering, especially as you compare it or contrast it with the Acts 2 passage. But there's also the Acts, uh, the Acts 10 passage, which is Peter, who is you know, the the primary speaker at Pentecost in Acts 2 is, you know, invited by God and by these two servants to the house of Cornelius. And he gives some speech to all of these Gentiles, um, a group of people who he was uh, not totally sure where they fit into this salvific plan of God um, post-resurrection. And as he's in the midst of his speech, doing the thing that he usually does, the Holy Spirit just shows up and arrives, and everybody starts doing the same thing that they did in Jerusalem in Acts 2, which is they start speaking in tongues. And so now you have a Gentile Pentecost that happens in, ten, in, in Acts 10. So between these three, I think it's, it's worth considering as a preacher the ways in which these three can sort of um, can braid together as stories that help us understand the movement of God that often doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But if I'm going to try and connect this to national treasure, I think it's also worth considering that the, that the Christian tradition has always had a number of different stories about the origin and founding of its institutional body. And that one of the things that this movie maybe perhaps doesn't provide and should is, and maybe it kind of does, right? Like the, the, the idea that the founding fathers are part of the Masons and therefore the Knights Templar and have these, this like noble treasure preservation goal is kind of interesting. But I think this country does best when it recognizes the myriad of stories that are instrumental in its founding. And that if it can tell each of those with integrity and thoughtfulness, it will do a better job 
in um, in expressing the full character of the place. And so I'm just kind of trying to wrestle with the ways in which um, the ways in which we tell stories about ourselves as a nation and the ways that we tell stories about ourselves as a church can broaden to include the, the many stories that are instrumental in the creation of a thing. I, I really, really like that. And <clears throat> one of the reasons I really like that, I mean, is because, it, of course, it also means that, like, the different angles on those stories or different emphases on those stories can speak to us uh, at different moments out of out of the need and the necessity and the urgency that we have. And it seems to me that a really simple way of articulating that is that there may be something really pastorally urgent this year about being able to preach a Pentecost that happens when Jesus comes into your house. Right. Very good. Yeah. Right. Which is, which, which is not about all the people that are gathered together in one place, yeah. but rather mm-hmm. that even if you can't go out into the city because you're terrified as the disciples are in John 20 there, they can't go out into the city for fear. Uh, that Jesus can come and give them the spirit anyway. Uh, and and I, I bet, including us, I bet a lot of churches will have preached that already on Easter 2. That Dodd and Thomas text shows up on Easter 2 every year. But it, right. there, there may be some beauty in revisiting that as a Pentecost text uh, in, in a mm-hmm. homebound environment. I love both of those those threads. And one, I mean, one thing that's to me, particularly Adam, what you were saying, is that to me that this that part of how American political culture has been so durable, um, and how the Constitution has been so durable, is there's not a single narrative, right? The founding's a gloriously messy sort of thing. There's <laughs> not a single thing, and it's and there is this sort of the analogy to Christianity is that you know it's it's great in Judaism. There's this there's this there's the founding story, right? And you know you have you know Moses tells the story. Um, and in Islam as well, right? You have this sort of, there's a single sort of coherent story. And what I love about, one of the things I love about Christianity is the fact that the founding story is really kind of messy, right? I mean, there's a, sim- there's a single narrative, there's a single story, but the four witness texts we have tell really different things. And rather than trying to like mash them all together in one thing, um, the fact that they are different and they tell these different stories is give it its strength and its its robustness uh, precisely because they speak to us at different times and different places depending on when, what we need. I mean, one 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 quote that one phrase that's been kind of sticking in my head so much during Corona time that kind of threads these together, both Pentecost and then back to National Treasure, um, was from Lincoln, um, and from Abraham Lincoln, and the the it's at the ending of the first inaugural. Um, and I pulled it up on the screen so I, so I could make sure I have it exa- exactly right, the full thing. And he says, the mystic chords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the course of the Union when again touched as surely as they will be by the better, better angels of our nature. And I love that text because of just the imagery of the mystic chords of memory. Right. And uh for me, it's, it's you know the the anniversary of the end of World War II, um, and all these different things. This idea of like time, how time connects, right? This idea of mystic chords of memory. But but what's so powerful to me about what Lincoln was saying there is um, is not the mystic chords of memory, but the end of the sentence when he, said, when he says, "We'll yet swallow the course of the union when again touched, as they surely will be." And it's not by the hand of God, and it's not by some treasure hidden under Trinity Wall Street, planted there by the Knights Templar. But it's again touched, as they surely will be, by the better angels of our nature, our nature. The choice that we have as individual, whether we're citizens, whether it's Christians, what, but the choice that we have, how we respond, do we respond and try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Do we try to respond and say, most people are trying to do the right thing. Do we respond to try to help people, right? Then we'll get through this, both politically as well as, as the church. But if we buy into that darkness, right, we're screwed. There's, not, there's no treasure underneath Trinity Wall Street. The hidden meaning of the, the Constitution is, do we act as citizens 
and are do we are we guided by the better 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 angels of our nature? What are the choices we make as individuals? And that's that's to me that's the the, the theory, and that's uh, and that's what Pentecost is about. Um, as Christians, um, you know, what do we do with this? What do we do with this gift? Well, and are we guided by the better nature of the spirit? Right, like um, it's that that Pentecost inserts a new character into this story in a way that maybe we weren't prepared for. Because when you start reading Acts, Jesus ascends and he's out of the picture. He's 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 the physical the physical presence of Christ is now gone. And so we have moved from a gospel account to these Acts of the Apostles account. And in his place, in his wake, is this spirit. And this spirit, if Jesus was inscrutable, this spirit is even doubly so. And you just do not know where it's going to move. And so to to trust your own ability to understand uh, like and, and figure it all out um, is not enough. You need the help. You need the help of other people. You need the help of the Spirit of God. You and and I think in the in the best of our democratic impulses, we live into that as well. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that ties into the 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 less important, but the only other thread that I wanted to pull on with relation to these lectionary texts and national treasure, which is that. There is, in, in, in the loosest possible sense of it, and I'm hesitant to use this word with Steve on the call, but there is, there is in these in these Pentecost lectionary texts, there's sort of a democratizing impulse, which, by which I mean the, the access to God is not going to be restricted through the priestly class. It is going yeah. to be sp- spread directly and offered directly to the people. Yeah. Uh, and and I, we see that, I mean that's that's why the the numbers text is there, right? That's why the Eldad and Medad text is there. It's that Moses is not going to be the only one who has priestly access to God. It's now going to also be other people in the camp, uh, and and I think about that in. I, I think that there's there's places of national treasure there where we see Doctor Chase's character is effectively a priest in the temple. Oh, yeah. Who who has priestly custody of the sacred text? Yep. Um, and then we see Gates and Riley as like the interlopers who are who who are trying to get temple access and can't get it. Um, and the, you know we see that sequence where they've gone to various agencies in DC before they come to the to the archives and they meet with Doctor Chase and she shoes them away. Um, but the spirit is not going to be denied. Right, because the because they they have they have the spirit, which is to say they have that special knowledge about what these texts actually are and what their value really is. Um, they have something that that is urgent with regards to them, and so the 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 old temple barriers of those institutions are going to collapse, so that this good work can be done. And I I think that you know. It, it, it only we, we kind of see the shadow side of that a little bit too where i i would now very much like for nobody actually to steal the national the department the declaration of independence <laughs> from the national archives so like it, i think interpreting the text that way begins to show that that, that it can feel uncomfortable depending on what side of those institutions you find yourselves in yeah if i could throw one thing to piggyback on that is that you can hear the people, you can hear the priests in Jerusalem listening to Peter and thinking, wait, we have this special access, right? But it's also the Romans as well, right? Because what what they're proclaiming is also disrupting um, not just you know, how the temple class and the priests were kind of visualizing themselves. It's totally disrupted to what the Roman emperor, the Roman cult of the emperor was saying as well. And so it's totally this leveling right. of the... That the that the knowledge is there's not this secret you know there's not this secret puzzle only for this elect few this is for everyone who is willing to open their hearts um, and that's um, you know and that's 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 a very that's a very powerful message for all of us today. Steve, I think you're going to do just fine in intro NT. Uh, <laughs> thank you for hanging out with us today. It's so good to hear your voice and to uh, have the this great conversation about such a trashy movie. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us.
Yeah. yeah. When, when it comes time for Escape from New York, I'm your man. All right. <laughs> we'll put you on the list. <laughs> you Thanks, Steve. All right, Matt. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's a chance to get another little preacher thought from something else we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude? So I've been, as I'm sure many, many pastors have, I've been thinking a lot about the nature of our Sunday morning online worship right now and kind of what models shape it and what, what what's going on for me as I think about what my values are for our worship experience. And very quickly, once we pivoted to the online format, I, I had a, my personal instinct very strongly was that we were going to do a, a live online service. I, and and that's, not a, that's not a judgment on anybody else who has done pre-recorded stuff from sanctuaries or things like that. But I, I, I wanted us to do something live. I wanted us to do it from our homes so that we could kind of model for folks who were stuck in their homes that they also have access to holy space, that it wasn't just about who could get into the sanctuary. And th- th- that, that of course, caused the greatest amount of challenge as we worked through online, um, like kind of live Zoom call worship music, um, because it's the music that Zoom handles the worst. It's the sort of thing that would be great if you could pre-record it or that if you could mix it or anything like that to make it sound a little better. Uh, by the time we got six weeks or so into this, we started inserting occasional kind of pre-recorded elements into our worship service. Uh, so we would have some video someone had put together that we could play at a, at a piece, but the, the, still the emphasis is on it being a live service and, and, ha- and having that community of, of commenters and folks in a Zoom gallery window that are the church that we're all together with. And then this week I had this epiphany which is that I realized that the underlying model for how I'm thinking about Sunday morning worship is Saturday Night Live. (laughs) And I don't mean Saturday Night Live in its most recent incarnation where they are now doing a lot of pre-recorded stuff from homes because their cast is stuck at home. Um, But I've I've watched SNL on and off for many, many, many years. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of the idea that cheering for SNL is like cheering for a sports team. Like we kind of stick with them, whether they're good or yes, bad and you, totally. you, you hope the best for them. And I, and I've thought about that, but, but the, the central conceit and the central contract of SNL is that it is live. It has to be live. If it's not live, then, then you start to hold it to a different set of standards and the places where it breaks are beautiful because the contract is that it's live. Now, in more recent years, the like Andy Samberg generation of SNL has started to do more pre-recorded segments. They do the like digital shorts and things like that. And it goes back even further to like the Robert Smigel stuff. But those pre-recorded segments are always the exception that proves the rule, right? You can't, the only reason you can do the pre-recorded stuff is because the rest of the show is live. And, and and if and if you switch that and if you switch that um, that chemistry, then I feel like the entire contract of the show would fall apart. And so I, I am just sort of surfing right now on this realization that my my liturgical thinking around online worship has I think apparently been heavily formed by thirty years of watching SNL, and I don't actually think it's that bad a model. Um, for how we think about what what live gets us in terms of the permission from um, a congregation and from a family and from an audience to have things go wrong, and what the the kind of ratio and relationship between live and pre-recorded stuff can be, so that that contract still stays in effect and still feels fulfilling and joyful and, and effective. So that's, that's my pop culture liturgical tie-in for the week, Adam. Well, I, I love it. I mean, I think it must have been eight weeks ago, you and I had a conversation about how to, how to do this. And I was so grateful for the thinking that you had done already about like how to do worship in this sort of, li- and to do it live in this particular time and place. Um, and you were a huge influence on sort of how we do worship now, um, in part because I, I 
I was convinced in our conversation by you that 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 liveness um, at, is 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 huge value for people um, because it it gives you the feeling of mm, of intimacy that is is so important. Um, yeah, the, the fact that something can go wrong um, means that you're you're in it together. Uh, if, if something if, if something can't go wrong, then it it it, it creates a distance um, that yeah. I can't fully articulate, but still is is resonant to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to say that yeah. to discount. Like I know churches are and churches and clergy are doing everything they can possibly think of to pull stuff off in pandemic. And I don't think there are wrong answers. Like I bless right. anyone who can pull off anything in the midst of crisis and all of the trauma that everyone is experiencing. So I am not here on like a prescriptive pedestal. <laughs> I am more here sharing right. my like weird Wait, I think I've been thinking about this using Saturday night live in my head to, to map out Sunday worship for two yeah, months. Yeah. And I find that kind of fascinating as an exercise in personal psychology. Totally. Okay. I'm going to talk yeah. about my postlude. Uh, um, yesterday, I bought 3,000 pounds of stone. Um, I've never done that before in my life. That was a relatively new uh, experience. Is it a euphemism I'm, for I'm, something? Or did you just literally no, no, no. buy okay. I, like, I went. I went to a quarry in Delaware County um, and talked to Anthony Jr. And he, uh, which is a very Delaware County thing to do, uh, and... I bought I bought some stone to build something in my backyard that I'm building. Uh, I'm building an oven back there, and um, and it was one of those moments where you can live in a place for a long time, but you can sort of fundamentally know you're not from a place. Right. Um, and that was uh, that was my experience yesterday, but it it invoked a lot of things in this time, which is I don't know about everybody else, but I, I'm feeling a sort of acute longing for home. Um, right. Where, which is whatever, because we're in this hard situation, trying to sort of long for that place where you feel most comfortable has created like tremendous feelings of nostalgia for me, as I've already talked about in this podcast. And, but, and one of the, one of the effects of that is trying to think about like how, how the places that have formed you give you some sense of, um, of comfort and satisfaction. And so while I was talking to Anthony Jr., I felt like incredibly intimidated because I was out of my element and I didn't know it. And I was trying to think about what I wanted and what I wanted, like if I were buying stone in California, I would, it wouldn't be Anthony Jr. It would be some guy stoned out of his mind who would be like, yeah, man, I'll get you some of that. Um, That would be the very California guy that I would deal with. And, um, and I've just been I've been missing that. And yet I have also found like incredible little um, uh, little satisfactions in trying to experience those places even from afar. And so I, I think all this to say is that there's a there's a part of me that wants to find ways within our ministries to help people connect to those small places, especially when this place may not be what feels most natural to them, right? So how do we do that in our worship service remains a live um, question for me, which is how do I invoke other places besides Philadelphia in this place in a way that will help people find small moments of satisfaction? And so just something I'm thinking about, something I'm trying to, to consider at this time, which is how can other places affect the ministry that we do in the tone and tenor of the work. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's real for us too because it, it feels like um, when we are not in our sanctuary, we are not as grounded in place. And one of the one of the beauties of this online Zoom worship is that we have folks that are connecting to our worship from like states away, which is yeah. amazing right. and kind of a cool uh, way of embodying the the catholicity of the of of the one church but yep. it 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 certainly deroots you right we're we're not standing on san antonio street in austin and that that we don't have 
we don't have our big oak trees and we don't have the smell of our place. It's not, it's, it's, it's a different, right. it's a different embodiment and there is definitely loss there. I hear you. All right. That about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. We love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Big Villain. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.